the best way to show people that you are experiencing joy is to give other people that joy. I didn't know that I could experience these feelings and I want you to know what it's like. And so I'm going to tell you in the realest way possible how I came to this conclusion of feeling so wonderful. And I really hope that that is something that is accessible to you and that you can find in your life. Joy is something that's worth seeking. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we talk with ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Paul Reese, fam. Delighted to introduce you to Morgan Sullivan, TikTok star, classically trained singer, church lady. If you are a fan of hers already, you might know her on Instagram or TikTok as at somewhat Morgan. She teaches gender-affirming voice care with the Voice Lab in Chicago. Yeah, so incredible, a lady. Quick trigger warning off the top. We do talk a lot about mental health. We talk about philosophy and the practical experiences of transitioning genders, both socially and physically. If these are things that are not right for you to listen to, feel free, switch this one off, and we'll catch you in the next one. That being said, we talked about a lot of things that she does so much better than me, including trans identity, working in coffee, working in churches, making music at Yale Institute of Sacred Music, finding and radiating joy, and how to make a part-time career and survive the haters on social media. Like I said, she does all of these things better than me. Can't wait for you to listen. Please enjoy my conversation with Morgan. Morgan, it's so good to see you um, and, and to get to chat to you. I think the last time we were physically seeing each other was, uh, gosh, 2019, I think. 2019 or so, yeah. I think uh, last I remember, I sort of was taking your place for the uh, the Path of Miracles concert. And I still ah. actually look through that score occasionally when I'm looking for like musical inspiration. And I have all of the notes uh, in your handwriting in there because you shared that PDF with me. <laughs> oh, that's so incredibly kind. Um, you know, um, a, a colleague of ours, we were talking about that um, Joby Talbot is uh, uh this this piece path of miracles is like in like the top three for both of us of um lifetime performances uh um, sure. chorally speaking the story behind that we're all graduates of the yale institute of sacred music we sang in the yale scola cantorum with david hill and there was this phenomenal uh tour that was scheduled um through through the different cathedra of spain that the piece is inspired by and i and i couldn't make it um i was i was not on the trip that summer because why why was i not on the trip i think i was um in this like tremendous like weight loss experience i remember i had been on medical leave yeah. at yale at that point because i sort of had that bit of a mental health crisis like yeah. many of us do within grad school uh, and so <laughs> I left the year previous, um, and the concert for the Path of Miracles for you was the first semester in the winter. That's right. And then you were gone in the spring, and that's when I came back from my leave of absence. And so I took over for you, and so sang the same parts. That's right. And and all of those like 
ridiculously like gr- growly range rumbly yes. um, bass notes that that neither of us sing particularly well yeah i remember at one point when i was in my first rehearsal after uh after we had revisited the piece it was my first rehearsal everybody else had performed it dozens of times at that point and we got through a phrase where there were a bunch of low b flats and i was just uh. like am i supposed to sing? is someone else being hired to sing? I have this circled in my <laughs> score. I, th- I think I'm supposed to, but I know you can't hear this. <laughs> Joby, Tal- Joby Talbot, um, he scored Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, that was one of one of yeah, the, I believe so. one of the films that that he worked on. But incredibly prolific um, composer has composed these gorgeous choral works um we had the privilege when we were preparing it in the first season of rehearsal that he was he came and gave notes um and then and then attended one of the performances but the opening of the piece involves all of the all of the the low bass voices in particular singing um notes that are typically played by a double bass um and None of us, except for the ringers brought in from Midtown Manhattan, actually could do anything besides uh, just sort of like growl that was like. Uh, I think uh, the the note or that the piece starts on a low A. That's right. Like below the bass clef, and we hired Glenn Miller to sing it, who's like That's one right. of six people in the entire world who can sing those notes. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's like it's Glenn Miller from Roomful of Teeth. It's Barry Carl, formerly of um, Rockapella, and who did like all of that like gorgeous recitaling um, throughout the '90s, um, and and probably probably a handful of of Russian singers like in yeah. that, that beautiful like Russian um, motet tradition. Yeah, they call them octavists, I think. Octavists, Octavists, I don't know. Yeah, I've read it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, people will know you these days uh, from TikTok, um, and, but I, I, I know I know you primarily as a recitalist and a soloist. Um, I wonder um, what other three performances fill out your Mount Rushmore of lifetime musical performances. Oh, uh, that's actually really tough. I mean, the Talbot performance is definitely up there, and the. Uh, the tour of Spain that we did with that piece was just formative for me. But yeah, in terms of, of big things that I've done, um, probably doing the Brahms Requiem when we recorded that for Hyperion mm. with David, uh, yeah. that's, that's, that was massive for me. Um, and also I would say my first, uh, St. Matthew passion. Um, I did, yeah. uh, at, I think it was when I was, um, in my first year of grad school at Yale, and it was in New York at St. Paul's uh, on Lexington. It's a, a Lutheran church, Paul, St. Peter and Paul, I believe. Yeah. Um, and that I, I sang as the baritone soloist for that, and it was really one of the, the nicest things I've ever done, because I haven't really sung much in Manhattan, at least, uh, outside of school. And so yeah. that was a really cool gig. Um, other than that, you know, I I'm really primarily in these days at least uh, a a gigging church musician, and so yeah. I like to think that every Sunday that I show up and have good rep to sing is formative for me. You know, I have a lot of big engagements in the past that have been really really special to me, but for the most part, just 
having good music to sing almost every Sunday where I currently work is is really what makes it for me. One of the things uh, that we, we were talking as we were setting levels and things, both of us have become uh, church ladies, which uh, we say with a wink and a smirk. Um, but um, tell me about, um, I, I would love to talk about the experience of what that's like, especially um, here we're recording in September when like the the program year is beginning and about to be in full swing well uh so i work at my current position as the communications coordinator and assistant to the rector at an episcopal church and i've always worked in the episcopal church my job is about as varied as it can get because i run the social media for the church i am the web mistress i suppose for the website yeah. Uh, which I just entirely redid. Um, I also sing in the choir, which is a fully professional 16 voice choir. We've got wow. three professionals uh, per voice part and then four choral wow. scholars who are students at uh, Peabody down the street. Um, so pretty much a fully professional choir. Um, we mm-hmm. sing for uh, Christian Lane, who is also an ISM graduate. Um, he was an organ major back in the mid aughts i believe um so i do pretty much everything there is to do there at the moment yeah Uh, and you know during the summer there's really not a lot to do because churches primarily function on sort of the the school calendar you know we we have light services during the summer but For the most part, uh, at least for parish churches, um, the choirs are on break during the summer. A lot of the the normal groups are on break during the summer. And so my job over the summer was just sort of to put out the e-news and make sure the announcements and the bulletin look good and, you know, show up every Sunday and make sure that people knew that I was still working there. Uh, But now things are gearing up in a spectacular fashion. Uh, We had our first rehearsal last night um, for the choir, our homecoming Sunday is this yeah. Sunday, um, and we're doing. Uh, we we have a season of quite a lot of new music, a lot of uh, Anglican standards. Um, we have a Brahms Requiem coming up for uh, wow. All Saints, uh, and so it's it's a very intense music program, and yeah. one that I'm very proud of. Um, I I should note because of you know those currently present of the 16 voice choir four of us are trans (laughs) wow that's yes i I, like and and that's um i i think that that i i remember like back in the day when i was in high school choir and like coming up and like being like coached towards um conservatory um the most the most scandalous thing that a high school choral director could imagine was that we'd all be gay because most of us were, or, or, or at least had, had, had like same, same anatomy attractions, um, regardless of like what, what the starting lineup was, um, down below that, um, that there was, the, there was this sense that, um, this is, this is the place where all of the outcasts and the weirdos hang out. It's true. Um, I actually, I come to that in a rather weird queer space because I spent most of my life identifying as a mostly straight white male. Hmm. Um, you know, I had been attracted to men in the past. Uh, I had relationships with men in the past, but 
Um, until I actually came out as trans, that was like my formative queer experience. Mm. Um, and so like I had always sort of existed in this box of, well, that person is, is definitely queer. So we're going to call them a gay man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I never really was. And it yeah. turns out that I, I ended up being gay just in the, the other way. <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, as, as much as feels life-giving and, and, and generative for you, um, I'd love to hear like more of the story of just the, the battle between understanding the language that other people use to talk about us like to talk about the queer community broadly speaking and and you and you're in, I, I invite you to to become as specific as you like um and and the process of of knowing yourself uh, because I, I feel like there are a lot of a lot of the conversations that we've had so far with guests have been about how do I how do I know myself? Yeah, well, um, so when we knew each other, I was married to my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a bit of a falling out. Um, I was dealing with substance abuse issues at the time. And so I didn't know a lot about myself because I had spent the greater part of my adulthood just sort of suppressing things that I felt about myself. Yeah. And and not really wanting to come to terms with how I felt about things. And so I spent most yeah. of my life with people assuming that I was a gay man who was attracted to straight women. Mm. Um, and then when I finally got my life together and my wife and I split up, I had to spend a lot of time soul searching. Mm. And I, you know, I think I went through the, the same pipeline that a lot of trans girls go through, right? We, we start as like, very aggressively masculine straight males because that's what we think we're supposed to do um i think when we knew each other i had a massive beard all of the time (laughs) it was it was impressive Uh, (laughs) like the butch lesbian in in me was like incredibly jealous Um, (laughs) well and so um i was sort of performing this role you know as as a, a straight masculine man and, um, you know, when I finally figured out my issues, um, I had to sort of live this new life where I was actively trying to understand myself and the way that I felt and the things that made me feel discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pipeline as it goes is, you know, aggressively masculine man to non-binary to, you know, she, they, non-binary trans woman to just a binary trans woman um and you know i think i had all of the hallmarks um in my childhood and growing up uh i think i'm not sure if you're familiar with this but we we call it egg cracking right um uh you know it's you're an egg until you realize that you're a chick and then you hatch right the the egg cracks yeah um but you know i i had all of those those behaviors as a kid where um you know, I mostly hung out with the girls in my classes. Yeah. Um, most of my friends were were girls, and then growing up, most of my friends were also women. Um, I cross dressed quite a lot before I realized that I would be sort of ostracized from my particular branch of society for it because I was yeah. in a military family. 
Um, I, I lived on Marine Corps bases for most of my childhood um, before high school. Um, so I, I had never really encountered um, a lot of out queer people. I had never encountered other trans people. I didn't know the word transgender until probably 2011. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at which point I was 21 years old and working with another trans woman in, a, in an Episcopal choir. Mm. Uh, she actually just joined uh, my current choir at, at the same what? church where we were working together 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Wow. Um, so that's a full circle moment. But um, she was the first trans woman I ever met and I didn't understand anything at the time. Yeah. Um, for me, it was just sort of like, I really identify with this person and I don't really know why that is. And we're good friends and I'm going to be supportive, but this is also very weird to me. And then shortly thereafter, I ended up at Yale um, and I met in my second year there, um, our friend Hannah, um, mm -hmm. who I had a very similar connection to in that mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand how we were the same but I knew that on some level we had a similar experience and feelings about things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, you know, we, we were never very close friends while we were in school together. Um, and we had some like very deep chats here and there where I was still very confused about things. Um, but when I finally came out uh, and, and understood this part of myself, um, I reached out to her and, you know, we, we chat every couple of months or so, but we'll stay on the phone mm. for an hour or two at a time, just like going over things that have happened in life and like what's new and, and you know, new developments that we've had in HRT because, I, yeah. you know, she's been doing it for years, but I'm 10 months in this month. Uh, so it's still fairly new to me. Um, you have some of the best. Um, you have some of the best portmanteaus for hormone replacement therapy, and and for the um, the and for for female trans folks. Um, I wonder if, for the benefit of the people who need groaner jokes, in order for this to be like a proper piece of media, you could give us a tour of them. Uh, so we have antihistamines. Uh, that's that's the most important one, I would say. Um, I think most yeah. of the community likes to refer to them as tit skittles, titty skittles, um, <laughs> which is weird because we always refer to estradiol as tit skittles, but really yeah. it's the progesterone that does the trick. <laughs> I started progesterone probably three months ago, and I had almost no top growth until that point. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think I'm I'm somewhere around a B cup these days, so I'm I'm pretty happy with that. Um, that's impressive. Like that's, <laughs> no, no, but no, but but seriously, like the the prevailing the the prevailing scientific knowledge being like the expectation of growth of top tissue, um, like we're we're not looking for miracles, and that's definitely like above the the scientific expectation, the scientific mean. You know? Yeah, I think uh, from the little research that I've done. Uh, most trans women can expect at the, you know, at the height of their top growth to achieve a cup size less than their mothers had. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'm about at my mom's tits now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, progesterone also is uh, 
a drug that, um, or a hormone rather, that, that does not have a lot of um, scholarly research yeah. um, for use as an HRT supplement. Um, but anecdotally, I can say it's it's kind of been life changing for me, not just in the in the top growth area, but also in emotional regulation mm. and my ability to fall asleep every night. Because mm. I I take that hundred milligrams of progesterone and I am out like yeah. maybe a half an hour later. It's the best sleep aid I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who needs a weed card or 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 other other resources where you can buy it more easily um yeah when you have when you have hormone replacement therapy yeah um hormone replacement therapy actually was a real sticking point for me for a long time because i spent maybe a year and a half after i started my new life identifying as non-binary and then at the time, I had been in a relationship with a woman who was very supportive um, of, of me identifying as trans, as non-binary, and just exploring gender expression. And then as soon as I turned the corner in the femme direction and started uh, like really dressing in a feminine way um, yeah. and, and changed my name and my pronouns, uh, she just booked it. Um, but... That was actually a good thing for me in the long run because I saw that as an opportunity to really turn things around and and just sort of have a fresh start. Um, and I had not in the year and a half or so that I identified as non-binary even considered taking HRT. And um, I think in 2021, uh, in June is when I started to go by she, her pronouns and changed my name. Yeah. And November that year is when I started HRT. So it was a journey to get to the point where I wanted to actually physically change my body. But mm-hmm. I can't possibly state in in clearer terms how happy um, altering my my hormonal makeup and my chemistry has made me because it makes me feel very much like the person I've always thought I was. Tell me more about the process of becoming the self. Um, it seems like there are these like little moments. It seems like it, it felt like the right time to take the next step in, in, be, in making um, outside, like public facing you feel a little bit more reflective of inside you. Yeah. I, I call them moments of seeking joy. Mm. Um. I think my very first big one was when I changed my name. We we talked about this before at some point. Um, yeah. I had been working on a piece of music at that point in June of 2021 um, for a few weeks, and it really resonated with me. Um, I, I'm not a professional composer. I didn't go to school for composition, but I, I do compose yeah. quite a lot these days. Um, And I have always, since I started composing at the age of, what, uh, 16 or so, um, I always signed my music with M. Sullivan. um, And I didn't like my my name. I I didn't identify with my name. Um, It was never anything that brought me joy. It was never anything that made me feel like me. Yeah. Um, So I I had always signed my name as M. Sullivan. Uh, For a little while in childhood, I went by the name Morgan. Um, I think I also went by my middle name for a little while. Um, But when I was working on this piece of music, uh, just sort of on a whim, I wrote 
Morgan Sullivan instead of M. Sullivan. Mm. And that was a defining moment for me in that it just felt correct. It felt like the way that I identify myself, it felt right to me. Um, And the very next day I filed paperwork uh, with the county clerk and started the name change process. Um, And I have not looked back since. I I have been Morgan from that day to people in my life, to myself, um, and legally a couple of months later, and I don't regret that for a moment. And I think that's the very first moment where I realized that seeking joy uh, is is such a fundamental part of just being happy and complete as a person. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anyone really knows that quite the same way that that trans folks do. Because yeah. when you when you are seeking joy in this respect, um, yeah. you're doing things that you that in your head, there, there's this cognitive dissonance, you know, it feels like you are subverting societal expectations, like you can't change your name. Um, but you change your name, and it makes you happy. And so the next time you think about something that makes you happy, you just say, well, I'm doing that now. That's, that's the direction that I'm going. And so changing my name and changing the way that I lived my life just sort of undulated over the course of a few months. And by the end of that summer, I felt like more myself than I ever have in my life. What would you tell Morgan, say, like five years, 10 years, 20 years ago? I don't think there's anything I could say to Morgan five, 10, 20 years ago that would make them understand where it is we get today. Yeah. Um, Because... I very much grew up in a a conservative atmosphere and my parents are relatively liberal people, but I lived on military bases for my entire childhood. And so I, even after living on military bases, um, I went to high school in a farm town in central Pennsylvania. Um, So I think there was maybe one out gay person in my entire school while I was there. There were maybe four or five non-white folks um in my class Mm -hmm. and so it's a very different uh society and and culture to grow up in from where i am currently Mm -hmm. and i think if if you told me 20 or 15 or so years ago that i am who i am now i might actually be disgusted with myself um and i think that's a really important thing to grapple with because A lot of really, I, uh, what's what's so important to me about figuring out my journey, who I am, who I wanted to be, is realizing that it's so different from what I always expected from my life yeah. growing up. Yeah. Um, and I, part of me aches thinking about how I could have had some queer representation in my life. I could have known other trans people in my life and come to this conclusion much sooner and experienced much more of my life in this joy that I experience right now. Um, but there's also another side of me that thinks, well, I, I came to be this person who I am today based on those difficulties, you know? Yeah. I can look at myself five, 10 years ago and say, that was not a good person. Um, and I'm, proud of that fact that I've come to this point in my life where I am actually proud of myself um, and and of the work that I do. So while I have 
always been trans. I was kind of growing up the same bigoted conservative person that I uh, that the people I was growing up around were. Um, and that's a journey. How when when it's when when it's raw, like when it's what what are the sorts of little things that that help you to to deal with both all of those things being true at the same time like that that the person who lives in your body like like is was that person before um like is is it are you are, are you the same person now are you a different does does that person feel like an entirely different person? Help help me understand. Um, in as much as I think my current life is the sum of my own experiences, I will yeah. say that I I put a hard stop at June twenty twenty one, or even maybe a little before then when I finally started to piece together the things that were wrong with me um, yeah. in my mental health and in my relationships and everything about my life. Um, I think for quite a few trans people, especially people who come out at a, at an older age, I mean, I'm not old, I'm 32, but, uh, I would say that I'm probably older than most people would expect for somebody coming out as, as a woman. Um, yeah, I, I would say that that was sort of born of trauma, and seeing myself for who I was before I transitioned and knowing that I did not want to be that person anymore. Mm. Um, so yes, I am, I am the person that I was before I transitioned and no, I do not associate myself with that man. Yeah. Um, in those, in those moments that, that, um, I, I know what the original question was, so we're we're gonna loop back. Um, and th- in those moments, like where we're dealing with like, with the the discomfort of having both of those things being true, who you were, who you are now. What are what are the things that help you like to work through that? That work through like the uncomfortable moments. Like, is it is it a walk? Is it like good coffee because i know you know a little bit there as well um is it um your girlfriend what what carries you through this is gonna sound very weird but um it's actually my personal relationships with the people who knew me from before Mm. um when i started my transition it was after i had moved from new haven back to baltimore i did my undergrad um in baltimore and so i've lived in this city longer than I've lived anywhere else in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and so when I came back here and got back into the professional crowd as this new person, I was working with people who knew me intimately um, before I transitioned and who knew my problematic life before I transitioned. Um, specifically in this church choir that I sing in, uh, I, I, had, I had been singing in that choir before I started in the office, but um, one of the sopranos was an ex-fiance of mine. And we had a dramatic falling out. Um, I remember when uh, I first got offered the gig, I saw the roster in the email um, at the beginning of the season. Mm. And I saw my ex-fiance's name in there and I immediately thought, oh no, there's no way I can do this job. 
Um, and so I reached out to her to, you know, just say, I'm happy to pass on this gig. I don't need to be in this ensemble. I know that you're a part of it. I don't want to cause any more trauma than I already have in my life. Um, and she responded to me by saying, everyone who knows you now knows you as a different person. Um, and I would be willing to get to know that person. Um, and it mm -hmm. turned out that we ended up being maybe not close friends, but, but friends over the course of that season. Um, everyone that I worked with in that choir, at least last year, um, for the most part, knew me beforehand. And they all treat me as a different person than I was before. And so fostering friendships, relationships with people who have known me in both iterations of my life um, is what gives me the confidence to keep going and, yeah. and inspires me to continue being myself. Because I know, um, based on the data, that this is a better version of me. Yeah. Are you um, are you a data person like in in other parts of life? Do you think I'm autistic? Members? So yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, I very much like to track things. Uh, yeah. I I track things in spreadsheets. I you know I my specialty right now aside from music is in social media, and I track metrics uh, like mm. it's my job. Um, so when I see some Delta, I try to figure out where that comes from and stick to yeah. that path if that's what I'm looking for. Do you have a personal favorite uh, spreadsheet program? Uh, I'm, I'm old school. I like Excel. Um, I, I, I like the Apple suite. I like the Google suite. They're all great, but yeah. I mean, Microsoft Office is what we all grew up on. That's right. <laughs> um, uh how did how did you learn did you did you have like a like a computer processing class in in high school or um no actually so i i was born in 1990 and so i am in that sort of in-between generation of people who grew up without the internet and then eventually had the internet but at a very young age right yeah um so computers were not a huge part of school for me um but they were a big part of my home life because my dad liked to build computers. You know, yeah. we had a we had a dial-up connection back when I lived in Okinawa, I think in 1998, 99 around then. Uh, and so I actually wanted to sort of follow my dad and his interests um, yeah. and, and started building computers. And his interests were outside of the internet, um, but I eventually decided that I wanted to, I, I thought for the longest time that I was going to be a web developer. Um, so I, I learned how to do all of the, the front end and back end stuff that I could at the ripe old age of 11 years old or so. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, that's always been a hobby of mine. And so all of the auxiliary stuff that goes with just you know tracking data and learning how to be proficient in computer things. Uh, that that was of primary interest to me from most of my childhood. Yeah. Um, it was, I think you could call it a special interest of mine. I was obsessed with building computers. I was obsessed with building websites and I was obsessed with tracking data and writing things down. Um, and so I've always kept track of things in Excel spreadsheets in terms of like, 
going to like money. Uh, I tracked my money in Excel spreadsheets before I really came up with a system that worked for me. Um, I used to track um, when I was really serious about like my my body and and getting into shape. I used to yeah. do a weekly measurement that I would track in an Excel spreadsheet and track the the delta over time to see what I was mm -hmm. doing right and wrong. Um, and so I just like seeing trends like that. Uh, I think it's it helps me put things into perspective because I can't really read the room otherwise. If yeah. I don't have hard data in front of me, I don't actually know what's going on. Hmm. There's and um, I, I suspect that that's probably true. I mean, we, we work with church people that love to tell stories um, and and but uh, where where for so many people um, who, who work in those sort of storytelling, like human relationship focused spaces, um, data is like the devil. It's true. I think actually. Uh, the vast majority of people that I have worked for in my life have been very ADHD. <laughs> and so yeah. like very story oriented and experience oriented, uh, yeah. which I have components of in my own uh, mental space as well. But for me, I need to see exactly what's happening in the most yeah. definite terms. And usually that means numbers. Yes. Um, I want to, I want to pivot to the other part of um, this um, piece about statistics and and numbers and spreadsheets um, that you that you mentioned um, is your work in social media. Um, you told me the story of how you got involved with, in particular, TikTok, but also Instagram. Um, I'm I'm wondering if you would tell tell us the story for people who know who know the accounts of somewhat Morgan. Um, tell us how how they came to be. Well. Um... So I guess this is a, only a couple of years old at this point, but um, when I first came to TikTok, it was at the beginning of the pandemic, um, and I was enamored with it like quite a few millennials were because we weren't really exposed to it at that point. It was just sort yeah. of a Gen Z thing. Um, and it developed into an obsession. I, I would go to work, I would come home and be on TikTok, I would share things with my friends. Um, and so eventually I started creating content um, and it didn't really go anywhere for a couple of months. Um, but I finally, at some point, uh, decided to post an introduction video, um, mm. which was set to Anglican chant. Um, <laughs> and for listeners who don't know, um, Anglican chant is where you have this pointed text mm -hmm. um, and a chord progression that uh, you would basically with the pointing of the text, you would change chords and then repeat verse for verse for verse, um, ideally in an expressive way. Um, and so you're, you're chanting music, uh, but uh, you can put any text to it. And it's a harmonic progression in Anglican chant rather than a melodic progression um, that you would find in other kinds of chant, like plain song. Mm -hmm. But yeah. in any case, I did this introduction. Um, I, I remember, I think I had a really funny line um, where I said um, that I that I use they them pronouns and that it should not be hard to remember that because there are always three of me on the screen when you see me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because before that point, I, I had been recording um, Purcell catches. Um, yeah. Henry Purcell uh, wrote quite a few. We call them rounds these days, but back then they called them catches. Where 
you know, you would sing a melody and it overlapped to canon, um, what we refer to in like actual um, academic music, Western academic music anyway. That's a whole other can of worms. Um, but, oh, just you wait. <laughs> um, um, but I'll, 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 I'll say, so for, for those of you listeners, um, chant, not just for the opening of Halo anymore, um, but please... <laughs> Um, well, yeah, so I, I had been doing uh, these personal rounds or whatever you want to call them up until yeah. that point, And then I, yeah. I posted this chant and it sort of took off. Um, and up to that point, I was maybe getting 100 to 500 views on my videos. And this one, I think, got somewhere around 10,000. So I thought, well, I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started... I, I kept on with with the early music stuff, um, yeah, but I was yeah. regularly posting, um, you know, parody texts, um, stories of my day to day life um, to these original chants that I composed and performed and and overdubbed myself um, with yeah. video and music in the in the um, in the actual TikToks, and they were very successful to a certain point. I think that was when I was on. The platform as somewhat musing um and by the end of it i had gotten to around fifteen thousand mm. um users following me and at a certain point when i started to um socially transition i started making these chants about my my transition and yeah. and then slowly just sort of um moving to the the kind of content that's just a person talking to a camera yeah um and i found that those videos didn't perform particularly well and that in fact the more i talked about my experience as a you know freshly cracked egg as a young trans person yeah um i i started losing followers um and so i started this new side account um because the, the name of the old account, Somewhat Musing, was very personal to me because it, it was uh, based on this um, piece of three-voice polyphony from the Fairfax Codex that I have always really, really enjoyed. And so I wanted to stick with that, but I had chosen the name Morgan. So I thought, well, Somewhat Musing, Somewhat Morgan, that's you know close enough of a parallel that people will know that it's still me. And so yeah. I started posting content on that account. And... Uh, I thought that it was just going to be this sort of side project while I kept up with the somewhat using account posting, you know, chant, academic music, early music. Um, but over the course of a few months, I quickly exceeded um, my user base that I had on somewhat using um, yeah. to a point where these days I'm just shy of 60K. Um, so substantially more on the trans account than was on my music account. Yeah. Um, and it became this really supportive community for me in the early days of my transition um, and really helped fuel me and guide me along the way. Um, the weird thing is that at that point, uh, very few of my um, followers were actually other trans folk. Um, mm. They were mostly family members of, of young queer folks, um, parents um, who were concerned for their kids, who just wanted to understand and, uh, followed me because they they saw an adult doing this and mm -hmm. wanted to understand the experience from from an adult perspective so that they could relate to their children more. Um, and that's what really kept me going through the social media thing because I would receive comments like, 
thank you so much. You know, I, I've been having trouble with my kids who, who are starting to identify by different pronouns, changing their name, changing the way that they present themselves. And I don't know what to do. And seeing you living a happy life as an adult who is trans uh, gives me hope for my kids. And that's what kept me going um, on the social media journey. Um, I think that's honestly um, the most humbling thing is that I didn't necessarily directly affect other trans folks' lives. I I affected the the lives of the people who might have judged them. Tell me about, tell me about that moment. Um, we're 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 gonna unpack a couple of stops along the the way of of that that story. Um, but tell me about that moment where you realize, like something just clicks, um, a social media egg cracks, and you realize, I'm on to something. And clearly, there are people who 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 need to see, who need to interact with content like this. What does that, that moment of rec- recognition or realization feel like? Well, I think honestly, and this is going to be a, a very um, not interesting answer, but like unpacking the, the mundane aspects of my life in front of a camera, in front of mm. a following, I think is what helped the most because I realized at a certain point that there had to be a balance of joyful moments, um, a, a balance of angry moments of dealing with the troubles of life. Mm. And also just like talking about my life day to day as a person and the things that I experience. Um, I, you learn pretty early on in, in uh, content creation that if you post the same stuff all of the time, people stop engaging with it. Yeah. Um, and so in the beginning, it was a lot of just complaining about transphobia. I worked in the service industry at that point. Um, and so I dealt with quite a lot of transphobia from the public. Um, and so I would just rant about that. Um, and that didn't get me anywhere. Um, but then I would talk about moments of, of trans joy. Um, mm. That's that's to me, like the the most important thing that I've gotten out of TikTok is the idea of trans joy, just like moments that you experience of gender euphoria um, that are inherently trans. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that if I just sort of went in between those two things and just talked about my life as a normal person, as a trans person, but as a normal person, that that's the kind of stuff that people would want to engage with the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the mundane life aspects of it, because if you're at one extreme or the other, um, you're going to piss some people off. You're going to make some people really happy. Um, but if they just see you as a person like them, uh, that changes things. And I think that's actually how I started to branch out from um, mostly having followers who were family members of trans people to actually being friends with trans people on TikTok, because that's all we do is talk about our lives, you know, um, and our experience, which to us seems mundane, everyday stuff, but to other people is like, wow, that's, that's a man pretending to be a woman um, in their day-to-day life, which is not the case, you know? Um, so seeing, seeing each other as real people, not caricatures of people, um, that sort of changes the game. Because in social media, 
especially when, when you're creating with a platform of people that you don't know, people do start to see you as a caricature of yourself. Hmm. Are all of the people that see you as that caricature, like, are they all haters? I don't think so. Um, I think that they're just, it's, it's very easy when you're absorbing content from creators, especially creators who talk about their personal lives um, yeah. frequently. It's, it's easy to see them as only what they post, um, which is why I stopped posting always at the extremes and started just yeah. talking about my life as it is. Um, quite a few people who see me as a caricature are, you know, TERFs, transphobes, people that, that would not otherwise engage with my content if they didn't have something mean to say. Yeah. Um, but quite a few people saw me as, uh, there, there, there's actually a phase, um, in, in my content creation where, uh, people looked at me as sort of like a trans grandmother, like the friendly, oh. like sweet figure that would just like share supportive stories um i quickly shut that down i thought it was adorable at the time <laughs> oh, but yeah the internet is is certainly won't to do that um mm. if you put out any kind of consistent material um people will see you as only that material and so it's important to vary things up i have to be quite honest with you i still have no idea what i'm doing on social media um <laughs> My job is sort of to work in social media as a social media expert. And my side job as a content creator is similar. But yeah, at the end of the day, I record a video. I look back and think, all right, that's worth posting. And I post it and see how it does. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. I adjust accordingly. Yeah. Um, is there... You you talk you talk about the capacity to adjust with with what feels like professional distance. Has there ever been content where you think this content is too too precious, too too sacred to to be willing to adjust or pivot from, or or is it all on the table? Um, I think generally it's all on the table. I you you say professional distance, and that uh, is actually a really important concern for me because. When I started to hit the 30, 40 K mark, um, yeah. I started to get videos that would go viral in the, the like real sense of viral and that millions of people were seeing content that I produced. Yeah. And as soon as you pass the like hundred thousand views mark on TikTok, you know, that like pretty much every demographic is going to see the things that you post sure. and you're going to get a lot of great responses and you're going to get quite a lot more hateful responses. Um, sure. And so I, after the first couple of videos that turned out that way, had to actually be able to step back and say, this is not going to affect me. This has nothing to do with me. This is just the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, I, for a very long time, I would not uh, interact with TERFs on my page. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't turn off comments. I wouldn't block people. Eventually, I started interacting with the hateful comments that I got on my page. And mm -hmm. that's a double-edged sword, too, because people start to see you as aggressive and bitchy or whatever you want to call it. Um, but at the yeah. same time, more people will engage with that sort of content because when, you know, a content creator with a platform calls out a turf with zero followers and no profile pic, yeah. uh, that's, that's entertaining for a lot of people. Um, but the things that people find entertaining are things that 
can actually hurt you. Um, and so these days I don't. I, I don't interact with that kind of stuff because I played around with it and I realized that no good can come of it other than more interactions. And yeah, yeah. to be honest with you, interactions like engagement of posts when you are presenting yourself on the internet are not really the paramount concern. Um, like cultivating a good uh, emotional balance um, and perspective with how you use your platform is, is really the most important thing, I think. Mm. When you think about all the lessons that you've learned about how to do social media well and in a way that feels joyful and life-giving with, with the conversation that we've had about joy so far, are there any lessons um, that have had like a profoundly life-giving impact, um, but were like a relatively small thing to change? Um, that is kind of a hard question to answer. Um, but I would say, honestly, the, the thing that um, I realized a little too late mm. um, and, and wish I internalized a little better was that the best way to show people that you are experiencing joy in your transition, in your life experience, is to give other people that joy, is to kind of speak to them through yeah. the lens of, I want you to have this as well. I didn't know that I could experience these feelings and I want you to know what it's like. And so I'm yeah. going to tell you in the realest way possible how I came to this conclusion of feeling so wonderful. And I really hope that that is something that is accessible to you and that you can find in your life, yeah. whether it's through transition, whether it's through your personal goals, your professional goals, joy is something that's worth seeking yeah what sorts of things are um refilling the joy tank right now like on the days where you're just like it would be really nice um to just sort of like crash in the bed and 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 like do nothing and maybe it is that but what what sorts of things like help help keep the the joy um fairy unicorn machine oiled and just continuously at least bubbling the fountain of joy um when um when thing when things are things are rough well that that's a actually leads me pretty well to really talking about the fact that i have not been on social media nearly as much recently um, because it stopped refilling that tank. It stopped making me happy um, because I wasn't quite getting the engagement that I wanted. When I did, it was the wrong kind of engagement. And so um, I had to look elsewhere and to cultivate actual personal relationships in real yeah. life. Yeah. Um, and you know, but I guess a very few other people might know that I just, um, my girlfriend just moved in with me. Yay! Um, <laughs> And so a lot of the joy that I find um, was lacking in my life because I wasn't really experiencing new things or putting out new content or engaging with new ideas is that I have someone in my life right now who sees me daily, every day, all day. <laughs> yeah. We both mostly work from home um, and sees me as a fellow woman mm -hmm. um, and experiences the same 
you know, societal framing, the same sorts of hormonal makeup that, that affect our day-to-day lives. And I get, even when it's, it's difficult, I get a lot of joy out of that experience. Um, and just sort of sisterhood, but in a romantic way, <laughs> that's a weird way of putting that, but like, that is the sapphic experience, right? That, that, when when femme aligning people are in a romantic relationship, the, it's it's the joy and the sameness um, yeah. that is really life affirming. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I I have uh, moved in with my girlfriend, and it's been one of the greatest experiences of my life because in my entire life I had dated only straight women because I was a straight man or identified yeah. as such, and now dating queer women um and especially having found what feels like my person um Mm. you know the person that i would want to spend the rest of my life with um that's an otherworldly experience because we relate in ways that i could never have related to a straight woman Mm. i am profoundly it fills me with joy um so cl- clearly it's working uh it, it fills me with joy to to see you be able to um radiate that to to get to hear about joy um so i um i'm i'm grateful that um that that i get to enjoy a little bit of that by proxy and by digital um, digital proximity. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not without its pitfalls, yeah. too. Because um, at the end of the day, I had not experienced being in a domestic relationship with a person since I was with my ex-wife. Mm. And so a lot of the problems that I experienced in that other iteration of my life, I'm yeah. confronted with these days. Um, but I'm confronted with it from from a place of of self-discovery and knowing what my pitfalls were in the past. You know, I have codependency issues. I think we all do to some extent, um, yeah, but yeah. I've learned about that in therapy. I've learned about that in my more minor relationships since um, my divorce. And so I can recognize when things are going wrong and say things are going wrong and I need to fix this. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I was able to do that before. But it is rather startling to be in a domestic relationship with someone and realize that, oh, I'm this different person with this new perspective on life, and I'm still dealing with some of the same things that made my life hard back then. Yeah. I want to, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, I, I would really love to do a, a Baltimore speed round. I'm gonna give you some okay. either ors, um, and you tell you tell me which feels better and why. Um, tourist um, visiting tourist uh, attractions, um, taking people to Fort McHenry or to the Inner Harbor. Fort McHenry, hands down. Don't go to the Inner Harbor. Stay away from the Inner Harbor. It's an awful place. <laughs> what is it that makes it the awful that awful place? Uh, it's it's just capitalism central in crowds. And as an autistic person, I hate crowds. Yeah. Um, as a not capitalist oriented person, I hate that stuff too. 
Um, I I would avoid the harbor pretty much at all costs in my day-to-day life, but I would also urge people coming to the city not to go to the inner harbor because Baltimore has so much more to offer. And it's fun that you mentioned Fort McHenry because that's my favorite place to go to if I can't get out of the city, but I do want a nice, um, like, warm and and calming environment. I love walking yeah. around Fort McHenry. Um best best spot for serenity mountains or beach oh that's hard um i can't choose i love hikes i i love being in the woods i love being you know we we both lived in in east rock uh in in new haven yeah and like the hiking there is otherworldly but um i also find nothing more calming than listening to the sound of waves on the beach hmm. and dipping my feet in the water and just walking along the shore. Um, mm. I love that. Mm. Um, best weekend getaway city, um, DC or Philly? You know, this is going to sound awful because I know you're in Philly, but I have never actually spent time in Philly. Um, and also the only substantial time that I've spent in DC was when I was working for the Folger consort. Um, Mm. I spent like a week on the hill in the Folger house across the street from the Folger Mm. Shakespeare library, which was a great experience. But other than that, I have very little experience both with DC and with Philly because Baltimore has everything you need. Respect. Uh, respect for the home love um um best sporting experience if such things exist orioles or ravens uh i am not a sports girl (laughs) (laughs) um i have been to a ravens game i don't think i've ever been to an o's game um i will say that a quintessential baltimore experience as in as much as i understand it is going to an o's game and shouting oh in the Baltimore <laughs> accent uh, during the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> uh, because that's apparently what people do. I've never been in that experience, but it sounds like fun. And people quite frequently will make fun, especially in the singing world, will make fun of my Baltimore accent because they think that I'm just an Anglophile because I work for the Episcopal Church. And so yeah. when I sing the, the vowel O, oh, I always sing it with an O. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is not not a um, a British accent of any kind. It's really just how we no. talk around here. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, thank you for for that little indulgence. I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about the beautiful um, instrument that I see sitting um, behind you. You over uh, the pandemic. Um, made room in your life for a harpsichord. Yes. Um, His name is Henry. <laughs> okay. Um, tell me tell me about Henry and how Henry so, entered your life. Um, I have always worked in the field of early music. Um, that's part of how I ended up at Yale. I, uh, When I was young, I was very into Baroque music. And when I decided that I wanted to pursue music as a career, I sought out the only music school that would give me a degree in early music vocal performance yeah. as an undergraduate, which is Peabody at the time. Yeah. Um, and I knew at that point that the, the ISM program uh, with the Vox Tet was where I was headed. Mm. Um, 
But ever since that moment, um, when I decided early music was going to be my thing, I started this sort of weekly activity of, of searching around the internet for harpsichords yeah. um, to see, you know, in the beginning, it was, what did it take to build one? How can I find someone <laughs> to work on this project with and like buy a harpsichord kit, which is a thing. Um, All right. And then eventually just like looking at instruments that I, that were very far away that were instruments that I could never possibly afford. Um, I've always been a, a fairly, low wage earning individual i think the most i've ever made in a year is like forty two thousand dollars which is probably shocking but i am a musician yeah (laughs) and i worked as a barista for for most of my life um as my side gig Hmm. and um over the pandemic um i did a lot of saving um I was working as a, a solo barista in a coffee shop, um, managing the shop. I was the only person who worked there. It was open five days a week. So I made all of the tips. Um, I was nice. saving much more money than I ever had in my life. And eventually this weekly activity of of looking at harpsichords turned into an actual possibility for me. Mm. Um, and I just sort of waited until I could find an instrument that was close enough for me to go pick up. And that was in my price range. Um, and it just so happens that this harpsichord behind me um, was in my price range. It was $2,000 because it's a, a fairly modest instrument. Yeah. Um, for reference, uh, a concert harpsichord will run you at least fifteen dollars to $20,000. So this, this small instrument is nothing that you would actually perform with, but is great for home practice. Um, but also, aside from being in my range, uh, was located in New Haven. What? Um, and so <laughs> I had been looking for a reason to go back to New Haven. Yeah. Um, I was pretty fresh in my transition. I have a really bad um, just sort of place association memory with New yeah, Haven yeah. because it's where my life kind of fell apart. Um, and so in December of 2021, um, just actually two months, maybe a month after I had started HRT and really committed to living my life this way, this goes back to the seeking joy attitude. Mm. I said, well, this is going to take up maybe half of my savings. Can I afford to do that? Absolutely. (laughs) Do I want this harpsichord badly enough? Absolutely. My life has taught me (laughs) that if I want something, I need to go get it Um, within reason anyway. And so I saw this listing on Facebook, you know, I make the rounds on Facebook marketplace on sure. Craigslist, um, on eBay even. And this one just popped up. It seemed like the right fit. I emailed the guy, um, to see if it was still available. And that weekend I drove up to new Haven and I drove home to Baltimore with a harpsichord. <laughs> um, and since then I've been putting in probably a solid four to six hours of practice every day. Even when I was working at the coffee shop 10 hours a day. <laughs> wow. During a pandemic, during the 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 coffee gig, and and more recently transitioning into um into church admin. Um, where does the time for sleep come? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> um I mean before I started taking progesterone, which is basically my sleep aid these yeah. days, I was probably averaging like five hours of sleep per night. Oh, um, I don't know how it was sustainable, but I was subsisting off of caffeine at that point. Um, wow. 
I was working in the coffee shop and probably putting back, you know, when you're a good barista, you're dialing in your coffee, the espresso at least once an hour, and then like yeah. three or four ounces of batch coffee every time you brew a batch to make sure that your dial's correct, right? So I was definitely going through probably eight or so shots of espresso every shift and maybe 24 ounces of, of brewed coffee. Wow. Uh, and so I, I just did not sleep ever. I mean, I did start spitting shots towards the end of the day. Yeah, um, yeah. I think my hard cutoff, I, I, I closed at four o'clock every day. My hard cutoff for myself is two. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, I can't drink any caffeine past noon <laughs> and expect to sleep. Um, that, that felt like a, an entire lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I did it. Um, I think I was I was just running off of pure caffeine and trans joy at that point in my life. And uh, that has an end date for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I watched an English comic talk about like there comes a time in life when you actually need a decaf tea bag. Yeah. Like when when two o'clock comes around and you're like, yes, please pass me pass me the biscuit. Oh, I mean, this might surprise you given how much you know about me and my coffee journey, but um, I don't drink coffee anymore. Um, I will occasionally yeah, from yeah. time to time or like when I'm at the office and I'm, you know, really digging into work and I just need to pick me up. But yeah. um, I drink mostly matcha these days, which has been really great for me. Um, mm. And I have a plethora of coffee equipment in my apartment, uh, which mostly serves as what my partner calls girlfriend coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I have an espresso machine and a nice grinder and a filter grinder that's separate from that. And so anytime she wants coffee, she'll just say, hey, babe, can you make me a latte? And so I go make a latte and I get to practice my latte art, which is great because it's the only good part about working in a coffee shop. Right. Uh, so I, I get that that joy of actually making good coffee for someone that I actually care about mm-hmm. um, that really disappeared over my decade of working in coffee service. Um, so I, I love coffee again. I just don't consume it. <laughs> nice. I, I'm, I'm just so enraptured by the idea that something um, that, that there are there are capacities to find new love for old things. Um, yeah, truly. I mean, I, I think we all come to things that are formative and important to us in, in waves in our lives. Um, and for me, coffee was all I did aside from music for a decade of my life. It was always my day job, um, Mm -hmm. before I started working in church offices and, um, I really started to hate it towards the end of my coffee career because I was working in customer service as a trans person whose body was actively changing and becoming perceptibly more trans. Um, And so I I hated it because I associated it with that negative experience. Um, And so having someone in my life who appreciates the good coffee that I make and the passion that I bring for the coffee has made me appreciate it once again, even though I don't necessarily consume it myself anymore. Was there a particular blend or origin that you remember enjoying the flavor of um we'll see that gets into the the sticky aspect of what's your favorite coffee drink right yes, <laughs> yes. because as a as a good barista i will say that i almost drink entirely drip coffee yeah um yeah 
I, I don't have a specific coffee that I like most because one of the best aspects of working a barista job is getting to try everything all of the time. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and, and my tasting coffee, I think, would be characterized as essentially seasonal, right? Because in yes. the summer, uh, you've worked as a barista before. In, in the summer, um, you, the pour overs that you go for first are the, the fruity um african varietals right we we always love our ethiopian blueberry bombs you know those heirloom varietals yeah Uh, and those are they have their place in the summer but you know in the winter and the fall when it starts when you just like want a warm comforting cup of coffee um nothing beats like a nice central american blend primarily something that's got a good amount of like bourbon varietal uh so it has that like nice citric and chocolatey aspect to it yeah and and don't 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 hate on this but just a little bit of whole milk (laughs) a little bit of whole milk um in a in a central american blend that's that's my jam in in the winter and fall because that's how i started my day back then i would get to the coffee shop around six o'clock in the morning and i would brew my first batch of coffee i would dial in the espresso and once i got to the espresso tasting where i wanted it I would um, take a very small cup of my batch coffee and pour yes. just a tiny amount of cream in it. And back then, I I smoked like a like a chimney, so I would I would take my my coffee outside in the bitter cold, yeah, um, and just enjoy a cigarette and a coffee with some cream or whole milk, and that would be my warming breakfast of the day. And that that's actually some of the only. Um, the only memories I can think of now that fill me with a lot of joy, you know, there's a, there's a gentle mellowing that just the right splash, uh, of dairy or whatever your equivalent substitute is, um, that, that, that doesn't give you the bum bum and the tum tum, if you know what I mean, for the, for for those, (laughs) those of us, those of us lactose intolerant people, um, that just, that that takes the edge off of those Latin Latin and Central American varietals and those South Americans that mm, mwah, chef's kiss. Oh yeah, I mean, I, funny, funnily enough, um, I had to keep up uh, a regular intake of lactose while I was working sure. um, and as a barista because I'm I'm sure most people are familiar with this phenomenon, but uh, we're all lactose intolerant to some extent, and if you stop processing dairy your body stops being able to process it. So the people who are not lactose intolerant, at least from what I understand, are people who have not stopped drinking milk. And so they mm. still have that enzyme that will break yeah. down the lactose. Um, but since I left coffee work, uh, I, I didn't keep up my regular habit of consuming milk. And no. so yeah. <laughs> I am very lactose intolerant these days. Right. <laughs> um, I actually last night uh kind of had the munchies and and decided to break into this uh, mint chocolate chip uh ice cream that i bought for my partner because Oof. she she is experiencing monthly times and she likes ice cream yeah. during that but i had it available to me and so i had maybe a quarter of a pint of ice cream and i paid for it this morning <laughs> <laughs> oh milk is bad <laughs> yes milk, milk is not great um um a 
I'm I'm I, I recently moved to the Southwest Philly King Sassing area, um, a neighborhood that I've I've dreamed of living in ever since I moved here. And um, gosh, that would have been 2011. Um, specifically close to this just this neighborhood that is just within walking or cycling distance of more than 500 acres of green space like public publicly well-maintained green space um king sassing is the neighborhood southwest philadelphia um it's right off like it's it's reasonably close to like um the campus of university of pennsylvania um and i made the mistake of um ordering uh brick oven pizza um like new haven style brick oven pizza um which is just dough with all of the delicious gluten-y vibes you could imagine the thinnest layer of marinara and then um the shot whatever the shop's blend of quat fromage is and yeah it was it was not a not a not a pleasant um morning um on on photoshop the the day after making making insta squares uh, <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, um, not not a great time to be a trans lady, that for sure. Um, <laughs> are you are you by any chance anywhere near? This is not uh, this is not a placement sponsoring of any kind. But are you near an elixir coffee? Because that is one of my favorite roasteries and uh, my very first coffee job in Baltimore. Yeah, uh, this little place called Tribeca Coffee um was sourcing the their wholesale coffee from elixir right when they were getting started out um yeah back around 2011 or so yeah uh, and evan uh was a good friend of mine the roaster and and co-owner uh and i still buy yes. his coffee from time to time and he will respond in an email saying hey long time no see <laughs> yes so um dear 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 um spot um in my heart for elixir um one of the um one of the the great a advocates of this podcast um is a place called um cic cambridge innovation center um which is the the co-working space with when i get when i have the privilege of recording live in studio where where my podcast studio is located and in the ground level of our building we have the university city um elixir outpost and so the 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 tradition for me when I'm recording in person with someone and it's before 3 p.m. is that there will just be like a little I've, I've vacillated between like the shortest pour of drip that I can get or um, an espresso macchiato um, because like those their their blends tend to be so fruity and citrusy and floral forward with like a reasonably high level of acidity. So same thing, like that little bit of just textured milk does so much wonder for, for making the, the drinking experience just so lush and, and luxe and, and luxurious. Yeah. I mean, their, their espresso blend beekeeper, it's always had that name. I think mm -hmm. when, when I first started working at my first specialty coffee job, they didn't have a name for it, but it's been beekeeper espresso since yeah. then. Uh, it's always been this like really rich chocolatey, but also yep. slightly acidic balanced coffee yep. that does so well in milk and yep. you don't need much of it. <laughs> yep. It is, um,
No, I, I, I they've they've had a they've had a, a couple of storefronts. Um, when I first got here, uh, um, we're getting far far too too far wading into like Philadelphia geography that no one except loyal Philadelphians will care about. But maybe this will get Evan on the show. Um, which like come <laughs> do the show, Evan, please. Um, um, uh, no, they they used to have a storefront on on Fifteenth Street, um, and um, they 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 closed that storefront because they outgrew it. It, it used to yeah. be just this tiny storefront that, um, and and the funny part was that they were right down the street, like I think maybe two or three doors down on the other side of um, what used to be a Howl at the Moon, like a piano bar, um, was a Starbucks, um, and they were reliably, biz, um, Elixir was reliably like serving lines out the door and they expanded and the starbucks as as um which is not to say that 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 i'm not grateful for the time when they covered my health insurance and all that stuff but um they they reliably were were keeping up and not just keeping up but thriving so they moved further down the street um in in the ultimate fast food dream of be next to um, a Qdoba um, <laughs> and a Chipotle um, and a a tiny local market where you could go and buy like your your chocolate squares, like your your um, your marzipan filled chocolate squares, um, your Ritter Sport, um, and the and that storefront uh, recently reopened and reemerged from the pandemic. Um, oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I think one of the really exceptional things about Elixir is not just that Evan is an incredible roaster with great taste and, and great coffee sourcing, yeah. uh, but he's also an exceptional barista, what? and that comes across in, in the baristas in, in those shops, because like yeah. they take training their baristas very, very seriously. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly talking out of my ass here because I haven't had a real conversation with Evan since what, 2013 or so. Mm. Um, but I, I remember just thinking that it was my very first experience in specialty coffee working at this shop. We were working with Elixir. We were, we roasted our own coffee. Uh, the owner of my shop roasted coffee and we used that for batch coffee, but for our pour overs and espresso, it was all Elixir. And I think in, after the first couple of months of working there, um, Evan um, and his partner or, uh, delivered our coffee order themselves. Uh, they were doing that back then because it was a smaller operation. Yeah. And and we went out for our very first family dinner um, with all of the, at the time it was the owner, our coffee director, and me and this guy, Nick. So where there were four people total working in our shop. It was a very, very small operation. And, and Evan and his partner came down to deliver the coffee. We went out for family dinner to this place that was pretty exceptional called Woodbury Kitchen, uh, like a farm to table establishment. But nice. since then, we all we have all found out that Spike Dirty, the guy who owned the place, a James Beard uh, award winner, uh, is also a quite a problematic person. <laughs> oh, <of laughs> but course. the uh, the food there was exceptional. And I remember we got to the bill paying portion. Yeah. And James, my boss, uh, started to pull out his wallet to pay for the meal. And Evan uh, very graciously just pulled a stack of hundreds out of his pocket <laughs> <laughs> and paid for all of us. 
that was my very first family meal experience. Um, we had yeah. family meal um, at places like that a few times afterwards, um, not with Evan, with James paying for the meal. And actually, James uh, works shifts, the, the owner of the shop works shifts as a barista. Um, and he, since he was working shifts, would take tips. And those yeah. tips are what turned into our family dinner money. Um, he never actually pocketed that stuff. He just poured it back into his staff. Um, I, that was one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. Uh, and my first real experience oh. with coffee community. And that coffee wasn't just corporate be. culture. Yeah. Um, so um, come do the show, Evan. Um, and, 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 and bring, um, bring, bring some coffee with you and we'll, we'll talk for like four hours. Um, we're, <laughs> um, we're reaching, we're nearing the end of our time. Um, so there, there's one more, um, question that I want to ask you with all of the, the graciousness and joy and the, the triumph that you've shared with us and all of the challenges too. Um, and that question is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? I want the world to look like just a kind, genderless, non-normative place where there's no such thing as normal, where we can all just look at each other as people, um, and share joy in each other's experiences without the framing of what kind of person you're interacting with. Just the idea that we're all the same. Mm. That's the kind of world I want to live in. What do you think it will take for us to get there? Oh, I think that if we are ever to get there, it will be the overthrowing of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, I know we're all a bunch of dirty hippie socialists, but um, yeah, I think placing monetary value on things and on people mm-hmm. is what stops us from seeing each other's humanity, um, in our work lives, in our home lives. Um, yeah. money is kind of an evil thing, and I'd like to see a world where nobody is really wanting for anything so that we can experience things without the bias of our own social trappings. Mm. May such a day come to be. Morgan. Many generations from now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> indeed. We hope at least um, if those generations are still living on dry land and we're not in a, in a Kevin Cosner. Hopper water world situation. Um, Morgan, so grateful for the time that you've lingered here with us on on the show today. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to my guest, Morgan Sullivan. You can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at at somewhatmorgan. You can find out more about her work with The Voice Lab at thevoicelabinc.com. Thevoicelabinc.com. Thank you for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube and Instagram, and you can follow us there for accessible video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on Instagram or an email at uncommongoodpod 
at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.